During his third expedition to South America in 1820, Charles Waterton found himself in a rather awkward situation. So an avid naturalist and taxidermist, Waterton had travelled 540 kilometres through the wilds of Guiana to capture a caiman as a genus of alligator for his collection. Now, Waterton was a perfectionist when it came to taxidermy, and he was insistent that this caiman specimen would be perfect, which meant catching it without damaging its skin in any way. And it's actually not obvious how you're going to do that. Um, the method which he and his local helpers set upon was to use something like a giant fish hook attached to a rope. So they baited the hook and they cast it into the Esquibo River, and then they waited and waited. And then suddenly, in the middle of the night, there was a tremendous shout. Waterton leapt from his bed and hurried to the riverbank to find it came in fast to the end of the rope. What to do next? I haven't really thought that far. <laughs> His assistant suggested shooting it or firing arrows at it, and this really annoyed Waterton, as either would have completely ruined the specimen. So in the end, he decided rather unconventionally to thrust a canoe mast down its throat instead. So he grabbed the mast, and he got down on one knee, and he ordered the men to haul the beast out of the water. But then something went wrong. By the time the caiman was within two yards of me, I saw he was in a state of fear and perturbation. I instantly dropped the mast, sprung up and jumped on his back, turning half round as I vaulted so that I gained my seat with my face in a right position. I immediately seized his forelegs and by main force twisted them on his back. Thus they served me as a bridle. He now seemed to have recovered from his surprise and probably fancying himself in hostile company, he began to plunge furiously and lash the sound of his long and powerful tail. I was out of reach of the strokes of it by being near his head. He continued to plunge and strike and made my seat very uncomfortable. It must have been a fine sight for an unoccupied spectator. The people now dragged us about 40 yards on the sand. It was the first and last time I was ever on a caiman's back. Should it be asked how I managed to keep my seat, I would answer, I hunted some years with Lord Darlington's fox hounds. <laughs> the history of 19th century science is full of anecdotes like this. Um, we hear about the young Charles Darwin scavenging around on the banks of the River Cam looking for rare beetles. And he's already got one beetle in each hand and then he spots a third. And so he's greedily stuffs one of them in his mouth to free up a hand and then only have to, to, to have to spit it out again when it squirts a noxious fluid down his throat. Or um, we hear about Richard Owen and his paleontological and geological cronies squeezed around a dinner table toasting the Queen inside Waterhouse Hawkins' life-size model iguanodon at the Crystal Palace. And we read about Charles Babbage having to be hauled out of the seething crater of Vesuvius, his boots destroyed by the intense heat, and his walking stick consumed by flames. Now, typically in academic or in popular histories of science, stories like these are treated primarily as decorations, so as quirky hooks to get readers interested. This evening, I want to make a case for paying closer attention to eccentricity, so for taking eccentricity seriously if you like. So I'm going to focus on two 19th century practitioners of science who were considered eccentric by their contemporaries. And methodologically, this is quite important. So the approach I took um, throughout this research involved exploring how historical actors defined and talked about eccentricity, rather than examining people or practices which seem eccentric to us today but may not have been at the time. 
So the first study is about Charles Waterton, who you just met. And the second is about Thomas Hawkins, a British uh, fossil collector from Somerset, not to be confused actually with Waterhouse Hawkins, who made um, that Iguanodon that you just saw. So in particular, I'll be talking about two books that Hawkins wrote, which were considered to be highly eccentric publications by contemporaries. So eccentricity was a label which could be applied to books in the 19th century as well as people. I'll argue that studying eccentricity, taking eccentricity seriously, is historically valuable, not just because this gives a more complete, more rounded picture of what practitioners of the sciences were actually up to in this period, but also because it can shed light on aspects of more mainstream scientific practice. So back to Charles Waterton. Waterton was born in 1782 at Walton Hall near Wakefield in the north of England into a well-established landed Roman Catholic family. He developed an interest in natural history at a young age. And as a Catholic, Waterton wasn't allowed to go to university, so when he finished school, he travelled to Demerara in British Guiana to oversee estates owned by his father and uncle. And then between 1812 and 1824, he made four voyages to South America to collect natural history specimens. And he wrote these travels up as wanderings in South America, which is the, um, the book that I was reading, from, uh, reading to you from earlier. So Waterton's book was extremely successful, and it's still in print today, and I can highly recommend it. Um, it was also instrumental in first establishing Waterton's public reputation as an eccentric. So most important was the Cayman story. Um, the book was very widely reviewed, and the Cayman story, along with several hair-raising adventures relating to snakes, um, was reprinted in countless magazines and newspapers, and this engraving was widely available in print shops up and down the country. However, another related factor was also very important at the time, and this doesn't really get um, anything like as much recognition today in histories of, uh, that mention Waterton. So, Waterton brought the Cayman and all his other specimens back to England, where he displayed them in his home, Walton Hall. Now, in this image, you can see, um, I think, yeah, you can see um, members of the public strolling in the grounds and fishing in the lake, if you look carefully. As was quite common in this period, Waterton opened up his estate to the public in order to provide what became known as rational recreation for all classes. Um, so this ticket here, entitled A Party of Six, to view the museum and grounds on Saturdays and Thursdays accepted from 10 till 2 and 2 till 5 in the afternoon. Now these visits in the flesh and the stuff that people wrote about them and published about them, um, they were, I suggest, just as crucial to Waterton's eccentric reputation. Country house visiting was in fact quite an established, conventionalised practice in this period, and there were different kinds of visit which were governed by different conventions and regulations. So arrangements for personal visits by someone known to the owner, usually someone of um, similar elevated social standing, they tended to be quite flexible. Um, though visitors would still expect to be greeted in a certain way, and they'd expect to benefit from certain kinds of hospitality. A second kind of visit was that undertaken as part of a tour. Now, tourists in this period were people, men and women, from the leisure classes engaged literally in touring a particular region. From the 1790s, the wars on the continent had closed off a lot of Europe, leading to a boom in domestic tourism. And after the wars ended in 1815, continental travel resumed, but um, tours of Britain remained popular. 
So tourists were generally admitted to country houses on the grounds of letters of recommendation signed by a person known as the owner, and we'll meet some tourists later on. However, Watford Hall was also open to members of the working classes. Um, there was growing pressure from Whig reformers in this period to provide leisure time for working people to, to help them improve themselves through rational recreation and travel and outdoor pursuits were kind of encouraged as this part of this movement. And from 1844, a series of railway acts ensured that affordable third-class rail tickets were available for the, uh, the benefit of working-class travellers. So visiting then was itself quite heavily compartmentalised um, in some respects, visiting Walton Hall, visiting Waterloo lived up to people's expectations, but in other respects, it challenged those expectations, um, reinforcing Waterton's eccentric reputation. Now, it's not always easy to work out what visitors thought about country houses or museums in the past, and sometimes people assume that you just you can't really know. Um, however, when I did this piece of research, I actually managed to track down about a dozen or so personal recollections um, published in magazines, travel books, um, memoirs of people who visited Waterton. Um, and from these, it's possible to begin to reconstruct visitors' experiences. Um, and also, since many of them were published, to start to see how Waterton's public reputation as an eccentric character developed. Visitors commented first on Waterton's personal eccentricities. Uh, people who knew him closely and visited him for extended periods of time described him as a very warm and courteous host, but with some peculiarities. Um, those who just visited him for an afternoon, if they got to meet Waterton at all, um, tended to describe him in mixed terms as an animated storyteller and guide, um, but also with um, some unconventional characteristics. In short, Waterton frequently and self-consciously challenged socially established boundaries, boundaries which related both to the personal behaviour and more specifically to the practice of natural history. So to explain what I mean about boundaries, I'd just like to make a short digression to recap on the history of eccentricity. That's the history of the concept or the discourse of eccentricity. Now, as you might know, the term eccentricity originally comes from geometry, so it just means a circle that's not concentric with another circle. In astronomy, eccentrics have been used to designate orbits which don't have the sun, um, or in the Copernican system, the Earth at the centre. And comets have historically been called eccentrics because of their non-circular trajectories. And it's from this association that figurative uses of the word eccentric are derived. So people were first called eccentric if they were like comets in one way or another. Um, and I've just got a couple of early quotes here. So... You can see from these quotes that in the um, 17th and 18th centuries, the usage of the term is perhaps slightly different to what we might expect. So the word eccentricity is primarily associated in quite a positive sense with bold, celebrated individuals, generally men, who soared above their contemporaries. So from Richard Savage there in 1728, we've got, he shines eccentric like a comet's blaze. But by the 19th century, the term was used in a more extended and often a more ambivalent sense to denote phenomena that seem not to be regulated by any central form of control. So it was applied to persons, objects and activities that seemed to move beyond their proper sphere. People were labelled eccentric in this period if they seemed in the 19th century, if they seemed to transgress socially established boundaries, boundaries defining masculine and feminine, for example, rich and poor, past and present, living and dead. And this is particularly apparent if you look at a new genre of literature, eccentric biography, which emerged around 1800 and flourished in the early to mid-19th century. 
Um, so these books were aimed mainly at the rapidly expanding working and middle-class reading publics, and they tended to bring together portraits and anecdotes, um, anecdotal biographies of so-called eccentric characters. And I've actually brought a copy here today from 1807 of um, a book called The Eccentric Mirror, which if you're interested, you can come have a look at afterwards. Or um, here's another example. We've got Lord Rokeby from a book called Kirby's Wonderful and Eccentric Museum um, of 1820. So Rokeby's shockingly unfashionable beard um, at the time portrayed him to live in one age but belong to another. And he was quite a, a common character who appeared over and over again in all these different books called Something Like Eccentric Biography. Um, we've got Hannah, Sell, Hannah Snell, who strayed beyond her proper sphere by becoming a soldier. Um, and uh, Mademoiselle Lefort, the hermaphrodite, who made a good living from exhibiting herself to the public and members of the medical profession. And incidentally, in my, um, my book, I debate a chapter to looking at um, in a lot more detail about how the concept of eccentricity comes to be defined in the early 19th century. And I argue that it's only really in this period that the term eccentric began to be used widely in Britain in roughly the way that it's used today. Um, so this new interest in talking about and reading about boundary figures may in part have been a result of a growing preoccupation in this period of ordering people according to their place within society as a structured whole. So this is what the caricaturist Cruikshank called the British beehive. So back to Waterton. Waterton quite self-consciously challenged socially established boundaries governing, governing proper forms of behaviour, especially in relation to class. So, for example, Waterton was a gentleman, but his dress tended to be practical rather than fashionable. Um, this is an uh, extract from a visiting account written up um, for the Leisure Hour, which is a weekly family journal of instruction and recreation um, produced by the Evangelical Religious Tract Society. Um, you can read that one yourself if they're not very impressed by Waterton's um, attire. Now sometimes, so the anecdotes go, Waterton was mistaken for a person of much lower social standing. And he tells a story of how on one occasion, this is just an example, but he was weeding a path. So it's not something that you'd expect a 19th century landover to do for himself. And a stranger came by on his way to the house. So mistaking Waterton for the gardener, the stranger began to ask gossipy questions about Waterton, saying, they say he's a good-natured old fellow, although he's so queer. I'd almost rather see him than his museum. And Waterton led him on, talking in a very broad Yorkshire accent. But then when the visitor, visitor moved on, Waterton dashed around to the back of the house and got his servants to invite the stranger to join him for dinner. And of course, in due course, and the clock chimed one o'clock, and the butler solemnly announced Mr. Tompkins, who was, of course, then mortified to realise his mistake. So this brings me to the museum itself, which was also full of surprises. One of Waterton's personal visitors, the London physician George Harley, was lucky enough to get a personal tour of the museum. He describes how exotic mammals and fearsome reptiles guarded the entrance hall, Gorgeous birds with iridescent plumage decorated the grand staircase, and impressive paintings lined the walls from floor to ceiling. Harley, like other visitors, was amazed at how lifelike the specimens were. There's a quote from another visitor on similar lines there. So Harley remarked, How splendidly they are stuffed! The compliment was very ill judged. 
He suddenly wheeled round upon me, Harley explained, and with flashing eyes exclaimed, What do you mean? Stuffed, did you say? Allow me to inform you there are no stuffed animals in this house. Waterton snatched a perfect polecat specimen from a case and told Harley to take hold of the head. I did so when he immediately gave the specimen a sudden jerky tug and left the head in my hand. Astonished and dismayed, I immediately began to stammer out an apology, but he cut my speech short, saying, Look into the head. What do you see? Nothing, was my answer. No stuffing, no bones, no skull. Could I either see or feel? It was simply empty. It contained nothing but air. Silently I gazed. Silently I wondered. So Harley, in his visiting account, uses this anecdote, and I have to say Harley can be quite over the top in the way he describes his experiences, but he uses it to introduce Waterton's novel Taxidermic Method, which resulted in hollow rather than stuffed specimens. Waterton rejected the method used by professional taxidermists and by more mainstream naturalists. He also rejected the nomenclature preferred by mainstream naturalists, preferring common names. So in these respects, Waterton deliberately challenged natural historical conventions. However, in Harley's story, he also um, uses it to illustrate the high degree of showmanship which Waterton injected into his tours and his mastery of suspense and surprise. So visitors consistently reported that they were amazed, startled, bewildered by all aspects of Waterton and Walter Hall. Visitor, uh, Waterton actively challenged his visitors' preconceptions, and you kind of get the sense that visitors expect to be amazed and startled and surprised, and if they've got what they were expecting, they'd be kind of disappointed, and this is quite a common, um, common trait. So the specimens themselves elicited powerful emotions. Particularly shocking were Waterton's taxidermic caricatures, hybrid creations, which often carried a political message. Um, so this one's meant to represent John Bull and the national debt, and the size of the national debt was £800 million. Pounds. It was a public outrage at the time. And here you can see Waterton's literally challenging um, practices of classifying specimens by challenging the boundaries that delimited the different kinds of creatures by um, literally putting their parts together in um, creative ways. Um, and this chap here is called Noctifer, or the Spirit of the Dark Ages, unknown in Britain since the Reformation. Um, you'll remember that Waterton was a Roman Catholic, and this specimen is an attack on the Church of England. Um, Waterton's unrestrained criticism of the established church in print, as well as through the less conventional medium of taxidermy, um, also contributed to his reputation as an eccentric. But the most notable specimens were the famous ones from wanderings in South America. So visitors made explicit connections between the objects and the adventures, something which Waterton encouraged by providing visitors with a copy of the book when they came in and by putting page references to the book on the relevant labels. And it's actually quite a modern approach to narrative museum interpretation by making that explicit connection to the stories that go um, with the, the objects, which is quite interesting. So Thomas Dibden, for example, was one of the tourists that I mentioned earlier, um, the vicar and self-confessed bibliomaniac visited Walton Hall in 1837 as part of a biographical, antiquarian and picturesque tour, which he later um, published. So about this snake, um, which Waterton once had a boxing match with, according to his story in the, uh, the, the Wanderings in South America, he, uh, Dibley writes, Yonder is a boa constrictor, coiled up to make his spring upon the unwary traveller. 
His scales glisten, and he moves along in splendid lubricity. I tremble to approach him, and can hardly think I've passed him in safety. In the word traveller, then, we see the crux of Dibden's fantasy. At this moment, he's both a traveller tourist in the museum, encountering a glass case specimen, but also the traveller in the wilds of South America, encountering a live, deadly serpent. So the object and the story come together, and Dibden imagines himself in, in Waterton's position with so much vivacity that he trembles at the thought. Um, and in this quote, George Head, another tourist who visited Walton Hall in the summer of 1835 in the course of his home tour through the manufacturing, di- manufacturing districts of England, um, Head explicitly relates the Cayman specimen to Waterton's adventures. So he writes, in a commanding position with a lowering countenance and an eye as horridly frowning as I ever beheld, stands extended at full length the renowned crocodile, sufficient in his own person to recall to the mind of the spectator that gallant equestrian feat which brought before the notice of the world the latter part of his history. Julia Pitt Byrne, a close friend of Waterton's, tells an anecdote in a book of hers called Social Hours with Celebrities, which was published in, um, in the 1890s. So she explains how she was staying in Aix-la-Chapelle with Waterton, and the party was seated for dinner across, um, across the table from a, a confused English tourist. Now, the tourist apparently identified Waterton's Yorkshire accent, um, but he didn't realise who he was. So again, it's a mistaken identity kind of story. Um, and by coincidence, he began to inquire about Walton Hall. Um, and then after asking about the visiting um, regulations, he turned to the question of the hall's owner, still unaware, of course, that he was talking to the man himself. I've heard he lives along, among a lot of wild beasts and birds and things. Is that true? And Walter replied, Oh, yes, sir, it's quite true, but they're all very well managed and quite harmless beasts, and so is he. I'm glad of that, for I want to go there. And is the story about the crocodile true? Story? What crocodile? Why? That he rides all over the place on a crocodile. That's what I should like to see. Um, so Pitburn's anecdote satirises what she'd apparently come to see um, as a rather vulgar approach to celebrity, eccentricity and visiting. Her account of her own visits to Walton Hall in the same book emphasised her close uh, personal collection of Waterton and how she was practically taken into his um, family, unlike the tourists who came by just for an afternoon. The anecdote itself may or may not be apocryphal, but in any case it underlines the fact that for many visitors encountering Waterton himself was just as important, even more important perhaps, than encountering the museum, which is what they're meant to be going to see. Burns' anecdotal tourists learned everything he knew from, uh, about Waterton from his books, and it was the Waterton from the Wanderings, the celebrated traveller who rode a Cayman in preference to more conventional modes of transport that he hoped to encounter at Waterton Hall. So this was the Waterton whom another friend, Edwin Jones, began to depict in this unfinished watercolour. So, in a parody of a quite typically picturesque scene, Walton and his Cayman take a ride in Walton Park, um, while Noctifer and John Wall in the National Debt in the bottom right there, um, and all the other taxidermic monsters from the collection, they look on unconcerned. So visitors viewed the collection in light of the wanderings, and it did the same for Waterton himself. So drawing together their experiences of specimens, narratives, and personal encounters, 
they viewed the celebrity naturalist as a specimen in his own eccentric collection. So Waterton's writings compared favourably to another 19th century naturalist who in many ways was rather less successful in um, manipulating his eccentric public reputation. Thomas Hawkins was born in 1810 near Glastonbury in Somerset. His father was a farmer and cattle dealer, so he was quite a lower social standing than Waterton, but still, you know, reasonably um, well off. Hawkins was intended for the medical profession, but when his father died in 1830, when Hawkins was just 20 years old, he abandoned his training and dedicated all of his time and most of his inheritance to his favourite pursuit, collecting. So Hawkins had rather grand social aspirations. Um, he also had a passion for collecting things. The phrenologist, Spurzheim, supposedly once told Hawkins that he possessed the largest organ of acquisitiveness he'd ever felt. Um, and that's the organ of acquisitiveness. You can make your own mind up, although it's a little bit difficult to tell because of his hairstyle over his ears there. Um, but in his late teens, Hawkins turned his attention away from coins, pottery, and worm-eaten books towards fossils, hoping this would gain him scientific prestige and would thereby help him advance up the social ladder. The majority of Hawkins' prime specimens were ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs, and many of them are now in the Natural History Museum in London, and um, do go and have a look at them if uh, you get a chance. They're really magnificent. So why fossils? Well... By the 1830s, fossil collecting had become something of a craze, um, and the science of fossils, paleontology, was the most fashionable science going. Um, this was largely due to some of the astonishing discoveries that have been made in recent years. So the discovery of the ichthyosaur, um, or the fish reptile, um, which was first discovered by Mary Anning in 1811. The plesiosaur, or almost reptile, the megalosaur, the first dinosaur, and the iguanodon, um, which was first announced in the Royal Society of London in 1825. So we shouldn't be surprised that when an ambitious young man like Thomas Hawkins set out to make a name for, him in, uh, for himself in science, it was the collection and study of fossils that, were his, that was his um, chosen field. They were fashionable, philosophical, and sometimes phenomenally expensive. So by the time he was just 24, Hawkins had spent nearly £4,000 on his hobby, um, which was a lot of money then. Many of Hawkins' fossils came from lime, the limestone quarries near his home. So Somerset lies on the Lias, which is the lowest division of the Jurassic era, and Hawkins amassed a gigantic assortment of flora and fauna from this formation. So he told his mentor and the famous geologist William Buckland, I have gathered everything indiscriminately until my drawers groan with shells, sorry, plants. In building up his collection, Hawkins established relationships with people who supplied him with specimens. So he regularly visited the quarries, and he got to know some of the quarrymen who soon learned that very good money could be made from selling on fossils that they found in the course of their work. And he also drew on the expertise of commercial collectors like Mary Anning of Lyme Regis, whom he once astonished, in fact, by arranging for a whole cliff to be removed so that a giant ichthyosaur could be extracted. 
So Hawkins was very proud of the extreme lengths he was willing to go to in order to obtain the best specimens, and he frequently boasted about the inconveniences, practical, financial and psychological, that he suffered for the sake of his collection. He once compared himself to the despotic Egyptian king Cheops. I went on, gathering one rarity after another, he wrote, as a second Cheops with a million slaves at his imperial beck might. So just as the king sent out these expeditions far and wide to gather uh, materials or precious minerals for the construction of the great pyramid of Giza, and Hawkins saw himself as commanding a great army of collectors, labourers and artisans, all working towards the completion of his monumental collection. So by the mid-1830s, Hawkins was completely broke, but his collection of ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs was regarded as one of the finest in the world. So what about Hawkins' eccentricity? Well, first, you might have observed that Hawkins' specimens themselves challenged classificatory boundaries, in a sense, um, and so they were rather eccentric in themselves. So with these extinct animals, you've got, for example, an ichthyosaur, a fish lizard, which brings together two different kinds of animal, or a plesiosaur, an almost reptile. Hawkins' personal behaviour was also relevant, so Hawkins was quite impassioned, um, and his obsession with collecting and also with advancing himself up the social ladder was considered by some people to be demonstrative of a lack of a certain amount of self-control. But most significant for Hawkins' reputation as an eccentric in his day, I want to argue, were two books that he wrote about his collection. Memoirs of Ichthyosauri and Plesiosauri, Extinct Monsters of the Ancient Earth, in 1834, and The Book of the Great Sea Dragons in 1840. So both of these were large format, quite luxurious, expensive books. And contemporary readers identify them as very eccentric specimens of literature. And just some quotes. This is an extraordinary book from the Literary Gazette. Um, from the New Monthly magazine. Among all the singular productions of the press, we do not remember to have seen anything more entertaining from its originality than the work which bears the above singular title. And again, from the New Monthly magazine, this is uh, the latest book, Sea Dragons. Um, unquestionably, the most strange and extraordinary book that we've been called upon to examine and characterise during the not brief course of our critical career. So I'm going to argue that people found Hawkins' books eccentric because they challenged the boundaries which defined the different literary genres. They were eccentric because they were literary hybrids which collapsed together the different kinds of book which could be written or published or circulated. And much as Waterton's taxidermic hybrids, in fact, collapsed together the different kinds of creatures into compound specimens. You'll see that I'll be referring in this section quite heavily to reviews of the book, which were published in a range of periodicals. Um, this is important. Hawkins' books may or may not seem eccentric to us today, but historically that's not particularly relevant. What's much more relevant is who was labelling the books eccentric at the time and why, and what does this tell us more generally about science, especially about scientific writing, scientific publishing in the early 19th century. So where did Hawkins go wrong? What do I mean when I'm saying the books are generic hybrids? There are lots of different ways which a book can indicate which genre it belongs to through the text, the main text, 
but also through what the literary theorist Gerard Jeanette has called the paratext um, of the book, so the covers, um, the, the, the physical format, the title page, the illustrations and so on. So these are all essential in setting up readers' expectations and giving clues as to how you're supposed to read any um, given work. So, for example, then, if we begin with memoirs, based on certain paratextual features, such as the title page, um, readers generally identified memoirs as being a scientific monograph, so as a specialist work of fossil anatomy. So just from the title page, there's already clues pointing in this direction. Um, you can see the titles about ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs, and it contains um, illustrations of organic remains. Um, the author is a fellow of the Geological Society, so that's quite a good start. Um, and it's published by an established scientific publisher. And then after this, we get on the next page, we get to some dedications, and the book is dedicated to William Buckland and another very famous established geologist, William Coneybeer. So Hawkins uses these dedications, which are outside of the main text of the book, to establish his close relationship with the scientific community um, and with his two prominent scientific figures. Um, and we can also see that this book has quite a large number of subscribers, which are, this is placed, again, quite prominently at the front of the book. And many of these are really important geologists of the day, Buckland, Coneybeer, Sedgwick, um, Dilla Beach, Murchison, and so on. So the implication, then, from these indicators is that this is a geological work and it's endorsed by eminent men of science. The high-quality plates were also important to the book's classification as a specialist anatomical monograph. So there was these really rather beautiful portraits, if you like, of whole specimens. And then, more typically, there were schematic diagrams of specimens. And the community of paleontologists identified these diagrams as... Um, the most valuable features of the books by far because it meant that specialists who couldn't actually go for whatever reason and visit the book and see the specimens themselves, they could inspect the specimens in person and they, could, um, they, sorry, they couldn't inspect the specimens in person but they could study the plates instead so it's the next best thing. So here for example the scientifically trained reviewer for the semi-popular magazine of natural history commends the plates, um, but he also writes that Hawkins' anatomical descriptions are sound, um, although they could have been more ample. And this is an example of one of Hawkins' anatomical descriptions. Um, so the layout of the text, with its use of different typefaces to divide the text into sections, um, and its system uh, referencing is quite typical of anatomical and other scientific genres. Um, the description is also written in what I can call a, an anatomical style, so many of the words belong to an esoteric anatomical um, vocabulary, so maxillaries, for example. Um, or to the uh, vocabulary of geometry, so we've got the form of the maxillaries is that of a triangle with an outer convex and an orbital surface. The sentences of these passages in general are short, they're simply constructed, and the author is effaced from the text completely. So the result is that the um, descriptions have an air of simplicity. And they avoid formally complex language, and they have, so therefore they appear to be devoid of rhetoric or expressiveness. Um, and if any of you are scientists, this is possibly the sort of passive, supposedly more objective style of writing that you might have been trained to write in. Um, it's what Roland Barthes, the literary um, theorist, calls writing at the zero degree, roughly. Um, so this style of text reinforced uh, readers' categorisation of memoirs as 
an anatomical monograph. And again, just a few more quotes. This reviewer from the Little Gazette wrote that the anatomical descriptions render the work a monograph of great scientific value. And um, this non-specialist reviewer for the Gentleman's Magazine observed, the anatomical analysis of the wonderful oviparous reptiles is scientific and, we presume, accurate. Um, so this writer doesn't actually have the necessary expertise to ascertain whether the descriptions are actually accurate, but the style of the language is, is sufficient to convince him that they are at least scientific. So, so far, so good. However, in other places in the same books, Hawkins contravened the generic conventions governing the production of scientific texts in quite spectacularly, and this led, I argue, to his books being, and their author being judged eccentric. So I'm just briefly going to show you two other contrasting fragments of text by way of explanation. The first is a discovery account. Um, Hawkins peppered his monograph with adventurous stories like this one about how he came to acquire his specimens. So Hawkins first sets the scene. It was July, the day being sultry hot, cool the delicious eve, and in a retired cottage that may well be called Virgilian, discoursing many pleasant things with my schoolmaster of old, I sat. So the difference from the anatomical descriptions couldn't be more marked. This is essentially a pastoral. Um, pastoral poems drew on highly conventionalised, idealised images of the day-to-day -day activities of shepherds and other country folk, and they expressed a nostalgic vision for the peace and simplicity of rural life. Um, and we can see that this passage is deliberately composed as a um, pastoral because he references Virgil, who, in his imitation of the Theocritian idols, established the model for the pastoral genre, so it's really quite self-conscious. Um, Hawkins really repeatedly drew on stock subjects of the genre, and rather than employing an anatomical vocabulary like we saw in the last passage, in these passages he uses a self-consciously poetic vocabulary. So he uses eve instead of evening, and maiden is substituted for girl, kind for cows, and so on. So in contrast to the anatomical descriptions, which seem to speak from nowhere, in these passages Hawkins is heavily inscribed in the text as the author. At one point the story even breaks into dialogue, which is not something you particularly expect in a scientific monograph. Um, so he's wandering through the countryside when he bumps into one of the, uh, the quarrymen who casually mentions that an ichthyosaur um, has just been revealed on the cliffs, but it's about to be smashed to pieces when the tide comes in. And Hawkins completely freaks out and tries frantically to spur everyone into action. Um, and this, place is actually, this um, piece is actually written, so the is talking the Somerset uh, dialect, which I can't really do, but it's kind of, you can't be seen today, so the tide's in. What nonsense, I must instantly come, come along, it's Hawkins. And through these passages, Hawkins is exhibiting his mastery of dialectal writing, which is a literary device commonly employed in pastoral literature. But he's also asserting his class status and his enthusiasm for geology and a sort of chivalric heroism by being allowed to speak directly in the work, and his heroic quest here is the rescue of this ichthyosaurus specimen before it gets smashed to pieces. Um, some readers and some reviewers really enjoyed these stories, but scientific commentators were more critical. Um, so this writer thinks that Hawkins has gone too far in trying to make his work accessible to a non-specialist audience. And this writer here finds the passages 
amusing but altogether misplaced in a work on science. Even more misplaced, however, were passages which can best be described as visions. And this is the last one um, that I'm going to talk about. Hawkins saw himself as a visionary, and he likened himself to a prophet in the way that he interpreted tiny signs and clues and fragments of rock and fossilised bone. And he used these clues first to recreate these whole sea monsters and then entire past worlds. Which, and he understood these, that these worlds were the very first days of creation described in the biblical book of Genesis. So Hawkins supposed his work then to have a profound religious significance and he was um, using the book of nature to literally flesh out the very early pre-Adamite history of the earth as it was recounted in the book of God. Now I should emphasise that Hawkins wasn't the only person making these kinds of connections at the time. However, in this period, elite geologists associated with the Geological Society of London, so the people that Hawkins was really desperately trying to find favour with, they were increasingly trying to distance themselves from what was um, known as scriptural geology. Um, and even though some established geologists, such as William Buckland, did continue to write works of scriptural geology, but he um, deliberately aimed those at a non-specialist audience, and he kept them quite separate from his um, more specialist scientific writings. Now, Hawkins failed to respect these emerging boundaries. Even more problematic, though, was the language about, um, that he wrote about his visions in. And this is from the Book of the Great Sea Dragons. Enthusiasm seems as extinct as the sea dragons which here inspire it. Their strange, eloquent remains bespeak a chord in our breast, which vibrates only to the master touch. The subtle and jealous gods of the vast promontory of time start at the well-known sound. They seize, they seize me wholly, and if the oracle, O reader, be ambiguous, blame thy fortune in escaping the pythonic fur with its ecstatic but exhausting delirium, its shiver and wild eccentric fate. Now, I don't really have time today to analyse the language of these visionary passages in any detail or responses to them. But in sum... The deep ambiguity of the text, coupled with crucially its placement within something that was purporting to be a scientific book, posed serious interpretive challenges for readers and led to the books and their author being labelled extraordinary, bizarre and eccentric. Playing on the multiple, multiple meanings in this period of the word enthusiasm, this author hopes that Hawkins' religious enthusiasm will not in future be allowed to mar the general character of the author's productions by such exceeding bizarreries. So, just to wrap up. In this talk, I suggested that a discourse of eccentricity was constructed in the early 19th century as a means of dealing with people, objects, and other, founded, uh, other phenomena which challenged socially established boundaries of various kinds. Eccentricity was primarily a label that was applied by other people. Neither Hawkins nor Waterton actually defined themselves as eccentric. To understand eccentricity historically, then, I've argued it's therefore necessary to look at audiences for eccentricity, the responses of readers, of visitors, and so on. 
There were a number of arguments for studying practitioners of the science who were considered eccentric and for including them within the history of science where they've often been marginalised, excluded. The first is an argument for completeness. Traditional, old-fashioned histories of science have been criticised for focusing too much on uh, great white men and leaving many other people, crucial people, out, so women, technicians, amateurs, and so on. There has equally been a tendency to sideline activities which don't fit our present-day ideas of what science should be, but which were considered as part of science in their day. So alchemy and phrenology are quite common examples that are, are given This presentist approach to writing history of science reinforces our own present-day ideals, but it gives a distorted picture of history. Um, This is something which academic history of science has picked up on quite a long time ago and is now seeking to address. But I suggest that acknowledging marginal figures like Waterton and Hawkins is part of redressing that balance. But I think there's a further argument specifically for studying boundary figures, eccentric figures in history. It's a helpful way, and it's one which uh, anthropologists use all the time, of enriching our understanding of societies and cultures, because it helps to reveal the often tacit boundaries, rules and conventions which order social and cultural life, whether these are the conventions governing the production of scientific books, or those governing country house visiting, or the appropriate behaviour of a gentleman naturalist. I suggest that one of the reasons that eccentricity took off as a way of talking about people and phenomena in the early 19th century may have been because people were particularly preoccupied with ordering society. Certainly within the sciences, there was a particular interest in how science itself should be organised and there were important changes happening at this time in the early 19th century. This, I believe, helps to explain why science was a focus for eccentricity. Uh, for talking about eccentricity at this time. So, very broadly speaking, this was a period in which many branches of science began to undergo a gradual process of specialisation. The discussion of new scientific research began to occur in dedicated journals rather than in the literary quarterly magazines. Um, Concurrently, there was an explosion of popular scientific literature intended specifically for non-specialist readers from all classes of society. The foundation of specialist learned societies such as the Geological Society of London in 1807, the Zoological Society of London in 1826, the Royal Astronomical Society in 1831 and the Chemical Society in 1841. These provided institutional cohesion for practitioners in what were coming to be seen as discrete scientific disciplines. This was also the period in which some, although by no means all, British men of science, lagging several decades behind their French and German counterparts, began to see themselves as professionals rather than as gentlemen enthusiasts. From 1831, the British Association for the Advancement of Science began to represent the career interests of those who would gradually start to be known as scientists after 1833 when William Huell coined the word. To a limited extent, new opportunities for paid employment in science were created. And while France and Germany led the way in university-based research and the provision of formal scientific training, science in Britain, as well as on the continent, gradually and haphazardly became open to careerists as well as gentlemen. Against this backdrop, I don't think it's surprising that individuals who deliberately or otherwise challenged old or emerging boundaries and conventions tended to provoke such a response in this period of science. 
Studying these responses, therefore, is not just a way of finding out what happens at the margins, it's a way of revealing the institutional frameworks and often tacit conventions which were being put in place in the early 19th century and underpin science as we know it today. Thank you.